Hey there, this is Self Obsessed, it's your host Jeff Grace, and today I'm here with Rylan Aldrich. He is the producer of my first feature film, and uh, actually my only feature film to date, uh, Rylan Aldrich. Hello, Rylan. How are you today? Hello, Jeff. How are you? Good, good. We are uh, going to talk today a little bit about your experience doing the Tony Robbins four-day program. Uh, what is it called? It's called Unleashing the Power Within, or right. Unleash the Power Within. Unleash the Power Within. Sort of a, you know, kind of a, sort of an unintense title there. Um and we're just going to talk about kind of how we got to know each other. You are uh, one of the most organized people I know in, in the world. I think you're also someone that's very into the self-help stuff that I am. Both fans of the Tim Ferriss podcast. I think we've talked about these things over the years. Uh, if you guys missed us last week, well, you wouldn't have missed Ryland because he wasn't here. Um, sorry, bud. <laughs> um, but I spoke with Casper Turneau of Swipes, which is my my go-to I actually try to get you to use swipes, but you uh, you were you had your own systems in place already. Yeah, both we both like the a lot of the uh, the life hacking sort of things, but it turns out that not we don't like the same ones. They don't they don't tend to work for both of us. Right. It, well, it's in, in fact in, in the conversation with Casper, which you have not heard yet because it hasn't been put out yet, but it'll be out by the time this is re- this is published. Um, the biggest challenge for his company is that it's really hard to get groups to join a common task management or project management software unless it's coming from the top down so you and i both work in film it's very freelance it's always pulling together people that don't work together on an ongoing basis so outside of google docs it's really hard to get people to use any shared standards so that's last week's episode next week i'm doing a bunch of interviews this week coming up doing a lot of 8 a.m interviews which people really seem to be uh excited to get up that early and join me uh me and tyler schnabel are going to do uh we're going to review the new apple products Ryland's, uh, he's an Android guy, so that's probably making him see just hearing about that kind of <laughs> Mac fanboy uh, love going on. Um, it's going to be some new iPads, maybe a new, maybe a new MacBook Air, new, uh, new Mac Mini. That could be something. Is that any of that get you excited? No, not so you're much. Never, you're never switching back. <laughs> and uh, I'm talking to our good mutual friend, Wyatt Russell, about how to buy a new car, oh. amongst other things. Uh, we, I've been trying to pin him down on what we're going to talk about, but he, he kind of refuses, but we're, we're, we're doing a conversation on Thursday. It'll be a free flowing conversation. I'm talking to a, we're talking, I'm talking to a, a mutual friend of ours about the landmark forum. I don't, I'm not using his name yet because we're not sure if he wants to be anonymous or not. Okay. Cause we're not sure how, if we're not sure if landmark is like Scientology where they come at you hard and fast. I don't think I know what landmark forum is. Oh, landmark forum. It's actually very similar to the Tony Robbins thing he did. It's a four day symposium um the difference is it's a lot more it tends to be very uh peer pressury to get you to recruit other people to come to the graduation ceremony so imagine your tony robbins thing you did Mm. but the whole weekend you're calling your friends trying to convince them to come to your graduation and you're encouraged to call your mom and dad and tell them how like they screwed up your whole life and stuff like that so they're sort of using they're sort of i think a little bit uh, weaponized is a strong term but they're sort of a they're sort of getting people in the middle of this kind of like, you know, these 12 hour sessions and these epiphany sessions to be like, mom and dad, like, you know, you, you know, the way you treated me when I was a baby is why I'm so screwed up today. And you better come to this graduation ceremony. And so wow. I've been, I've gone to two of these graduation ceremonies, uh, once on the request of the person I'll be talking to and once for a sales rep 
who had just taken me to a Bulls championship game like the week before. I talked a little bit about this in the, <laughs> the episode with Aaron Hayes. And um, and then they basically try to recruit you to do the four-day work for them right then and there. It's like multi-level marketing, it's but to- it's, I, I think, with self-help. I think, I think they would admit that it's multi-level marketing. It's like one of those billion-dollar companies that has like seven full-time employees. Mm, right. But uh, my guest is someone that actually worked at the organization and was one of the leaders there. Uh, I know, and, I, no, and I, I, the comparison to Scientology is a little, um, you know, on the spectrum of, uh, let's say, uh, is this a cult or not? Uh, Scientology is really high on the spectrum. Very high on the spectrum. <laughs> Landmark's a little lower. The Catholic Church, lower than that. You know, so there's just, you know, we're all on the spectrum of being in a cult. You know, if you're a Republican, that's a cult. Democrat, cult. I guess a cult actually is, it, to be defined as a cult, it, it, it uh, I guess a key a central premise is that you need to have a charismatic lead mm. uh, figure. Right. So like Catholicism, I guess we have Jesus Christ, but he's not like currently alive. Or the Pope. Or the Pope. Uh, but he's sort of, it's a little more decentralized, but a, a, a real cult is like L. Rod Hubbard and Scientology because mm. it's one central figure. Mm. So Landmark doesn't have that. They don't have like one guru guy who's, uh, um, speaking of which, the title of the Tony Robbins film that we're going to talk about is called I'm Not Your Guru. Mm. So he's sensitive to this, but uh, a lead charismatic figure uh, is a central point to being the distinction between a cult and an organization. It does seem like a lot of times the guy at the head of those organizations, it always seems like it's about sleeping with people's daughters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Big uh, common theme there in a cult. I don't think that happens at Landmark either before anyone gets too upset out there. (laughs) So, well, so... We're going to talk a little bit about, um, you did the four day Tony Robbins seminar and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Cause I want to, I want to interview people that have done some of these more, um, I would call extravagant se- seminars, self help things, got a little deeper. Um, but first of all, let's talk about how you and I know each other. So you produced Folk Hair and Funny Guy. Thank you very much for that. We're working on another film right now called Birdie, trying to get that made. Um, you'll probably be hearing about that trying to get made for the next uh, six years of podcast. <laughs> it's been, a, it's been a bit of a challenging project. Um, but we, uh, you're sort of unique cause you are, you came at film producing a little bit through the side door of being a, a film. I wouldn't say a film critic, a film enthusiast, yeah. a film Jur- journalist, I film guess journalist, a little, yeah. there was a little while there that I was dabbling in, in film journalism, you know, before, uh, before journalism, um, which I sort of found myself, working in, I was also trying to become a screenwriter. So in some of your episodes in the past that I've heard, you've talked about kind of the process of, of what it takes to, to succeed as a, as a screenwriter or as a, a creative in Hollywood. And, and I remember a few years of sitting around at Los Feliz coffee shops and, you know, eyeing the six other tables that the same <laughs> writer was at every day trying it's to. It's always a little intimidating when you see 15 open, you know, uh, screenwriting software programs going yeah and and just you know what what the self-discipline that that takes of course too um you know um i found myself going to a lot of film festivals uh via this website that i was writing for at the time was called twitch film it's now known as screen anarchy still associated with them you still work there uh yeah i still contribute i'm a i'm a festivals editor so a little bit more um organizational stuff than actually a lot of i don't do a lot of writing there these days and, and festival editor i mean i know what it means but for people that maybe aren't as steeped in indie film it's kind of a role that i i made up at, at twitch at the time um and basically i was i was going to a lot of film festivals and this was an excuse to have 
kind of an official role for the site. At the time I was writing more reviews, um, I, I stopped writing reviews formally um, around the time that Folk Hero and Funny Guy came out, actually, because it was it was just becoming a little um, of a difficult <laughs> line to walk being a filmmaker. You've had a few filmmakers <laughs> come up to you at film festivals <laughs> I've been to. They weren't happy about some of the, the reviews you'd written in the past. Yeah. I can see why that's a professional liability. Yeah. And, and you know, I never really set out to be a, a critic um, certainly didn't set out to be a critic. I, I didn't even really set out to be a journalist, but, but it was access, you know, you can, you can get, um, uh, in the, in the film festival world, it's very helpful to have access at film festivals via, cause you can get into all the parties, you can get into all the screenings. Yeah. Yeah. Via, via having a, um, press credentials, you can get into most importantly, all the screenings. Um, no, it's not the parties. That, well, the parties, priorities wrong. The, the press pass doesn't get you into the parties, right? The press pass gets you into the screenings and then the relationships get you into okay. the parties. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and those relationships are, are what form. I always like to say that the most important thing isn't, you know, who you know, it's who you actually get to become friends with. And the way you get to be friends with people is by seeing them over and over again, festival after festival, year after year. And, you know, you, you form real relationships and those real relationships with, um, filmmakers and film press and film publicists. In my case, I'm married to a film publicist. Um, you know, those things, uh, become real relationships and those real relationships have a real way of, of helping you build a career. And they've certainly helped me, um, with some of the limited success that I've had in the, in the film producing world. Yeah. I would say, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think I told you that it was Sundance last year was the first time. And I've been, we've now been slogging away at this for 10 plus years. And it was the first year I went to a, a film festival. And I was like, Oh, I know, like, I know it, it took 10 years to be like, Oh, I know enough people that I can actually like, you know, get in. Like, I remember my first time, few times going to Sundance, I couldn't get into any parties. I couldn't get any tickets to screenings. You just, you just felt like a complete, like, you're like, is this ever going to happen? And then just slowly over time, you know, you feel like, oh, I, I guess I know enough people now. I've been doing this long enough that you sort of survive. I guess, you know, and a little bit of it's sort of a, a rite of passage, right? Like, you know, so many people enter this business and are out in like two to three years that if you can just hang in there long enough, it can kind of get a little easier. Yeah, it gets a little bit easier. And I mean, it doesn't necessarily make it a ton easier to get your movies made. Obviously, we, we know a lot about that. But but um, getting movies made makes it easier to get movies made. And, and you know, I think a lot about the the years that you and I put into to uh, getting Folk Hero and Funny Guy made, which wasn't it wasn't the first movie that I had produced, but it was the first movie that um, that I produced as as sort of the that the lead producer, that lead producer yeah. role. And, and, you know, you and I spent Months and months and months at, at coffee shops, um, going down our list of possible people who might know someone who had a line on an investor so that we could potentially pitch them the idea for our movie. Um, and, uh, next thing you know, here we are, you know, two years out of the, you know, the world premiere of two and a half years. Well, how long has it been? A year and a half, two and a half years since the. Yeah. I mean, the movie was in theaters last year. Yeah. And. and to your, you know, year before that was the is Tribeca. So yeah, it's been, it's, uh, it's kind of daunting how much it's really challenging. I mean, I, I keep going back and forth on even in my own career, you know, this, I spent the last couple of years kind of making some money. Uh, cause it, you know, as you know, you don't really make a lot of money from indie films. It's, you know, hopefully indie film can be, you know, you can be one of the lucky ones, right? You can, you can be a uh, piece of the Southern wild or something like that, where you get bought for 10 times your budget. But a lot of times indie films don't make their money back or they don't, or they break even. And then the people, you know, like for, I think my entire, I think I just realized this the other day, like my entire 
I think the entire amount I paid myself on Foker and Funny Guy was fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, I literally had to I verify that with you because my accountant asked. He's like, "Is that all you paid yourself?" That's <laughs> like shit. Which yeah. when you when you when you think about four weeks of production, it, it's like, oh, okay, that's that's why it was right. fifteen thousand dollars for four weeks of production. But that does not account for the two and a half years we spent before that. And what it really um, and you know one of the major problems and i know that's not what we're here to talk about is the problems with the economics well, we, this of the is, indie film industry this is the oldest this is like the number one like it's like it's, it's like a signature panel at every film festival the state of indie films and why it's so hard but but i think that the biggest disparity in pay when it comes to those indie films is is not the amount of work it takes to get them film made it's the amount of work that it takes once the film is made and the right. years of trying to sell it accounting and uh taking care of the llc and you know looking after investors interests and things like that 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 happen for years and years and years afterwards yeah the, the life of a film for unfortunately for producers i mean it's it's sort of a forever mm-hmm. i mean because the movie even you know and a lot of films too you end up you know, I have, you know, felt the scene series now is so it's been out there for so long and there's such a glut of new content. You're not getting a lot of revenue on the old, you know, it used to be that you'd have, you know, uh, videotapes of Blockbuster that I kept getting, they'd have to repurchase them to refresh them or DVDs, what have you. And so your film made money forever and ever. And now, unless your digital rights get renewed, your movie can make less money than like your operating expenses in which you have to shut down an LLC, which is, which actually is sort of a relief because you're not, it's, it, it requires less um, accounting, but it's, you know, it, you know, it's, it, your investors have to agree to it, but. Um, but to bring it back to the positive for a second, I, I, I'm not sure why, but this morning I woke up thinking about how much fun we had when we made the uh, DVD commentary for hmm, Folk Hero and Funny yeah. Guy. And that, that just, reminded me of of all of the you know really incredible times that go into making a film and and that's why you do it right you, you, you're really not doing it for the financial gains obviously um although you know because well, there aren't any a long-term strategy might involve <laughs> that um but but uh but i was thinking um i was chatting with my mom uh, last weekend, and uh, we were talking a little bit about Birdie, and and uh, which which, as Jeff mentioned, is the film that that we're working on putting together now, looking to maybe shoot next year. And and uh, when we had made Folk Hero and Funny Guy, my mom had uh, actually lived with us. Um, yeah, and your mom cooked. was our in-house uh, chef. Yeah, it was great, and it was you know a really special time for uh, us to spend together, my mom and I, and and also. It gave her a great um, window into sort of my life as an adult in a way that you just don't get when you stay, uh, you see each other for a week at, at holidays or something like right, that. Right, yeah, totally. And it's something that we've come back to over the years since then and chatted about. And she asked me about you and she asked me about, you know, the other chefs of Meredith and Wyatt are still together always and things like that that, that are, yeah. um, that you know, I, when I asked her to to come do that when we talked about the idea of her coming and cooking with us um it felt very practical but it was i don't think at the time i realized just how <laughs> special it would be and and those are the little things your mom was one of the cheaper options <laughs> it's very true um but but uh but it, it turned out to be something I can't, really special I there's can't so many things about mom, that movie because we were living how many people lived in that so we for for uh on folk and her funny guy we, we shot the movie in atlanta and we live in two houses next door to each other near the emory campus and I think they were pretty much used as student housing yeah. for Emory students. There were two the the two biggest Airbnbs we could find, and they happened to be literally next door to each other. It was perfect, and there was 
I think there were five people in one and eight in the other or something. So yeah, it was it was me, Nancy, Wyatt, Alex, Meredith. Yeah, that was one house. That was one house. And then you guys were I mean you guys were even like eight, nine. Yeah, we had a bigger house. We had uh uh well uh Alex and Travis and Emma and uh Blake and and uh Hannah and then my mom. And then we also had a, oh, and then Rachel came later. And then we had a spare bedroom where uh, the cast Did of Rachel characters. Did Rachel split that bedroom with, with like Emma, whatever yeah. random, we had, a, we had a spare bedroom from, it was a <laughs> bedroom that was divided and in Colby half. too. So yeah, it was a pretty full house. <laughs> but she would, my mom would it cook for us. It had a hot tub though. My mom would cook for us in the mornings and at night. And then we'd have set food when, when it was we, we had a lot of day players. A lot of actors were generous enough to fly in. Oh, that we would pay for their flights in. And they would work as local hires, which saved our us friends, a lot of money. Yeah. Our friends. But then we put them up. But it was a, bis- <laughs> a bisected yeah. bedroom. It was divided with like a piece of carpet. Or, or what was the dividing? There was like insulation that we had some interns build the first weekend there. <laughs> and they cut the room in half. But But if you think about that whole experience, I mean, that's like... I remember dreaming when I was back in film school, dreaming about the idea of like, you know, going off and making a movie with your friends. And it's exactly what we did. And it's almost like we did it like there, we were so caught up in the what we needed to do to get this movie made that that it, it was almost like no one sat down and said, hey, wouldn't this be super fun if we did it? It was just like, this is a very efficient and effective this, way this to do this. And not thinking about too much about I mean, you, it was really the only way to get it done for the money we had. I mean, we we had like, I think less than $400,000 in the bank when we shot that movie, right? Right. Something I mean, it was really low. And um, I mean, I also think it might have been the hardest I've ever worked just like and from a sure just like willing, you know, I think for all of us, I mean, you just get up at eight in the morning and you'd work till midnight and you, and then, you know, you didn't have a time, you know, people would still hang, have time to hang out and have group dinners and stuff like that. But it was, I mean, it, it's it, a lot of people compare film to summer camp. And I think it, I think that's pretty analogous. I mean, I think that's why there's just like so many, so many onset romances. Because, yeah. But, yeah. but it was also, you know, I've had films that I've, that I've produced that, um, that weren't like that. And, you know, they, oh, were, they, they shot, were shot in LA and you, everyone yeah. would go home at night. Yeah. And, and so, Which, I mean, to be honest, I think as you get older, you prefer not oh, to yeah. be gone from your loved ones <laughs> Absolutely. for two months at a time. <laughs> but it was perfect timing, you know, for us to go off and do that. And, and probably, you know, um, if, you know, we make birdie, um, or when we make birdie, chances are, we're not going to be able to capture that you know, we'll be working with a slightly bigger budget. We'll and, be working with children. For, that's and, one of the problems. And, and so, yeah, so I don't, I don't know if we'll have quite, we'll uh, be a lot of, it will be eight, a lot of, it's a lot of 18 year olds to play younger. Right. So I can only imagine, like, could you imagine we to live in a house of, of a bunch of like college students? I just think that we're, you know, we're a little bit older now and, and I'm not, I got, I got, I'm actually getting younger. <laughs> I'm actually, I, I'm now my, my new casting type is, is 18 to 23. <laughs> um, yeah, well, so I mean, so let's talk um, about. So you, you know, you came from journalism. You have when I, your background's pretty technical too. I mean, you're sort of a computer like uh, you have sort of, a, or you did when I first started working with you. You had a, my dog is is playing with a squeaky toy in the other room there. Sorry for those of you at home, um, but you uh, had a like a wireless networking business, or is that what would you what would you call it? I did I did a little bit of IT consulting. Um, and, uh, and yeah, my sort of in a, in a past life when I was actually back when I was in high school and for the first few years out of high school, I worked in the, in the IT world and, and, uh, did a little stint at Microsoft and, um, always had that little bit of a technical interest. Um, 
but it was it was mostly just around you know getting bills paid and never never really a passion. Mm, interesting. The because uh, I mean you're super technical. Um, yeah, you I mean you sort of have a, a lot of different skill sets. I mean I think from my point of view is like you know working with you as a producer. I produce a lot on my own, but I'm not like necessarily a very detail oriented person naturally. I kind of talk about that in the last episode about kind of why I believe so much in having a lot of systems uh, when you're not naturally organized, but you're, you're very naturally organized. Um, I think you have super high attention to detail, but you're also very creative, you know, in a way that I think a lot of producers, it's like, it tends to be an either or, right? You can either get like a line producer type who's super great with details, but gets super stressed out when there's a ambiguity or when things are a little bit up in the air um, where you're able to juggle that and the details um, and you have a lot of great creative feedback. So, I mean, it makes you a really good producer. But when you were in, let's say, high school and college, I mean, what were the what were some of the courses that you excelled in? I mean, what, what were classes that you were good at? Or were you were a good That's student? a good question. No, I, I, I haven't thought a whole lot about that. I was always really like, – school came very easily to me, but I was always very disinterested. Um, so I, I did get relatively good grades, and I think all straight A's in high school. And then um, – I, I actually uh, left high school. There was a program. I grew up in Washington State outside of Seattle, and there's a program in Washington uh, that allowed you to go to community college instead of high school, or or a lot of people did it part time. They would you know go to high school in the morning and then go take a class at community college and get their uh, some of their credits out of the way. And I did that, although mostly because I just had no interest in going to my high school, and right. a lot of my friends had. Um, graduated or had done this program. And, um, and so when I graduated from high school, I had my two year associate's degree, which, um, which wasn't really something I'd set out to do. It was just a byproduct of going to community college for two years. Um, I'd say the classes I was, you know, I, I, I found myself doing sort of computer art classes a lot. That was probably the thing that, that I was most, interested in, um, in those days, like, uh, graphic design. And, and so, so sort of marrying what you said, actually, and I appreciate the compliment, marrying that, that sort of technical skill of learning how to use Photoshop back in like version three or something right? with, uh, with a little bit of creativity of, of playing around and, and, uh, and, and art. And, and, and I think that film is a relatively natural extension of that, although not one that I necessarily foresaw, um, and and it wasn't until years yeah, later. How did you? Because you you lived in Japan for a while mm-hmm. after college, but you weren't doing anything. I mean, when did you start getting? Did, when did you go to film school or, or do any of that? <laughs> uh, well, the very quick version of the story is I I dropped out of college after a year at the University of Washington um, because I was working in the in the computer industry in the IT world. And I was studying computer science, like the programming side of it, which was just way more analytical. Was that just because you felt like that was a practical money-making kind of career? Yeah, it was the sort of the only thing that that made... I actually had considered doing something a little bit more artistic, but um, ended up taking these pre-computer science classes, sort of a, a byproduct of going into your freshman year of college with your two-year degree is their first thing they say is, well, you're like, you should, you need to know your major because you're already two right. years ahead. right. So it's, oh, it's even worse for you because you went to a community college. Well, I don't well, know. You have, worse, le- you have less time. You have less time to screw about. Yeah. And um, and I was mostly interested in screwing about, to be honest, um, or at least having a lot of fun with whatever I was doing. And, right. and it turns out that the computer science, the actual programming classes, they were OK, but it required a lot of calculus and other things that I wasn't particularly interested in. And, right. and I was more interested in um, 
snowboarding and uh, <laughs> uh, liberal politics. There was the WTO was in Seattle that year, and so I got really involved with the. Were the you one of the guys in the black masks? Were you, throwing, uh, were you like ready for to be tear gassed? <laughs> I did. I was tear gassed. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. That's a rite of passage for any good young liberal. Yeah, yeah. Um, did not get arrested though. Did you have friends that got arrested? Oh yeah, quite a few. It's funny. That's a. It's. A, it, who knew that that was? Because the Seattle riots were sort of a precursor to what we're going through now. The mat. The the sort of hyperpartisan madness we're going through now. Yeah, you know, it's so hard to really draw a straight line because there's nine eleven in between those two things, true, which really yeah. changed everything in the entire you know ecosystem. Um, but um, but for me, it was a really interesting thing to go through it when I was eighteen years old and and you know, sort of had a political awakening. And do you even remember what the, I mean, what was the big protest against the WTO at the time? It was all about, um, it was free trade versus fair trade. So it's a, it's a similar conversation that's happening now. Um, which is weirdly now, I mean, is how odd is it that Donald Trump is the anti-free trade guy? <laughs> yeah, Anti-WTO. And I remember, you remember Pat Buchanan used to be like one of the few Republicans that was anti-free trade. And, and it, I mean, I don't want to get too down the rabbit hole of economics, but I mean, it does seem like free trade now looking back was like, pretty much just gutted the middle class. Now, whether or not that's avoidable, I don't know. But it's certainly we certainly could have probably pumped the brakes on it as the global leader of the economy. Yeah. And, and you know, and as an 18-year-old, you know, wild-eyed liberal, it's easy to right. think about, you know, you know, voting for Nader and, and whatnot. Um, but how much of it is just middle finger to the man? I'd kind of be fun to throw on a, a black mask and just like... Get, get a little nuts. Well, it wasn't that for me. I, I think that um, I didn't, you know, I didn't wear a black mask, but I did. Um, get, <laughs> did you, was your face co uh, covered? I had to, I had to put like something on my face because of the tear gas. But no, we had just, we were just marching. It wasn't a riot. It, we didn't know that was going to happen. You know, that day it was and like. It really wasn't a precedent for people getting tear gas. At, at, no. There were 50,000 people on the street shutting down the city, though, and it was incredible. It was the, and there was the energy like that came out of that. Getting there was like people were breaking store. I, I don't know. Maybe this is this is the story you hear. It was yeah. like people were breaking Starbucks windows. And yeah, it, it, it felt a little bit like a war zone, but it didn't feel dangerous. You know, it was there. There were um, it, I, I, I don't know. It, 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 I. I, we were like the student group. We were kind of like the organized ones or one of the, there were a bunch of labor groups there down right. there too. And then there were the more radical ones that, you know, were, were willing to take things into their hands more. And that w I wasn't part of that group, but I, I don't think I really knew that much about the issues, you know, up until just a few weeks leading up to it, really. Which and, is kind of how it is. I mean, cause in high school, it's not too common to be like hyper politically aware in high school. Not at all. And then in college, you get sort of a total, you know, most colleges lean pretty left. And I think all my, my school, when I went to Colorado college, it was so left that I ended up becoming like working a little bit with the Republican party. Cause like, I was like, as being sort of a natural contrarian, I was like, well, if everyone here is practically a communist, then maybe like, you know, I literally work, I worked for Frank Luntz, who was now the, you know, who was sort of the architect of the contract with America and Newt Gingrich and which I'm reading a lot of articles now was sort of the origin of this hyper, you know, again, yeah, hyperpartisan yeah. era of politics we're living through right now. And, uh, I mean, I'm certainly far left now. I'm not far left. I'm center, probably left of center. Um, and, um, yeah, well, I mean, let, let, so, so just to round out that, how that all fell, you know, into film, basically what happened was I, it was interesting and I was, and I was more interested in the politics and the snowboarding <laughs> than I was in going to school. And so I left, I left, uh, which I think is so smart. 
Yeah. To, 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 I mean, I wish I had know taken what I time off from college, yeah. and it's so expensive. And you know, I was super lucky. My grandmother, who had money to pay for it, paid for my college, mm-hmm. and so I never had to go into student debt or anything like that. But if you're going to go into debt to go to college, you better sure as hell know what you're doing because now you, now you're saddled with two hundred, sometimes three hundred three hundred thousand dollars in debt. And if you don't really know what you're doing with that education, it's a pretty expensive way to babysit someone from ages 18 to 22. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and so I left school and, um, worked and, you know, snowboarded and sort of chased this dream of becoming a professional snowboarder, um, which was a lot of fun, but not particularly lucrative. Like a lot of things I've done in my life, a lot of fun, but not particularly lucrative. Well, it's funny. I, I feel like there, uh, I was just talking to someone about this the other night about, uh, people that are financially motivated. I, you know, I'm not like, I, I have friends that are, their number one driver is just want, how do I make more money? How do I, how do I squeeze 10 grand out of this? How do I, you know, and that's just not my motivation. I guess I'm more creatively oriented. Right. right. I think you're the same way. Absolutely, I mean, I think, yeah. um, to my detriment, I think, I mean, I think what I'm doing part of this podcast is like, I'm spending a lot of time now reading like a, the Tony Robbins financial book, which yeah. is epic long. Uh, that's actually how we got talking about Tony Robbins was that book. Right, you actually yeah. were the one who told me to get it. I read um, that. Yeah. It's definitely, if you just want like a primer on all things personal finance, it's, it's excellent. It's, but it's, I think it's a little too big. Mm-hmm. Um, I read the Ramit Sadie book. I don't know if you ever read that one. No, called. but I've heard you talk about it a I've lot. I've talked about it a lot. I, I think that's, I think if I had to recommend one book, it's just, it's, it's like 200 pages. It's a quick read. It's got like easy to get, you know, if you just follow the advice in that book, you're like, it's, you know, sort of the 80, 20, Tim Ferriss, like you, you'll, you're going to get most of the knowledge you need to about how to invest and how to organize your money from that book. And then I think Tony Robbins has got some more sophisticated stuff in there. I'm a little, we'll talk about the Tony Robbins things. I, th- I think that book is a little bit of a, a sales pitch to use that sure. financial services company that he has. And but I, I certainly I learned that, a lot and yeah. I did not sign up with that financial services company. So there's something to be gained from yeah. it. Um, and I think that maybe actually speaks to um, a bigger, um, you know, maybe tendency in, in my because I consider myself a pretty natural skeptic when right. it comes to these kind of things. Um, and, uh, and so I like to f- really educate myself and, um, and take what I can from, you know, what lessons I can from, from whatever, um, you know, issue we're discussing or, or, um, and I think that, that maybe that has something to do with these sort of productivity apps and why a lot of them don't work for me is because they, they kind of maybe take over, um, the issue and say, Hey, well, like, and, and I've heard you talk a lot about, uh, they, be, they become almost like, uh, instead of letting you customize it the way they, they right. come with a built in philosophy that yes. you have to follow. Yes. And, and, and something that, that you've talked a lot about on this podcast is budgeting. And, and, um, I had never heard of YNAB. You need a budget. Is that what it's called? Are you using it now? Or no? no. Um, but I, I'm interested in it except for the fact that, you know, I spent, uh, long weekend about six months ago completely rebuilding this gigantic spreadsheet and you know for all of our family's finances you're you're naturally organized that's the thing i mean you you are someone that actually tracks expenses and if you're building a new wing on your house you're like gonna every absolutely nail you buy will be accounted for so for me I, i think for someone like you it's a little more for me, I'm paralyzed with uh, sort of, uh, well, God, what's the perfect system? At some point, it's like, just pick a freaking system. Right. And that, for so for me, why and not? I need, I need to generate that system myself. I think yeah. that's the big difference is that I, I feel like unless I'm building that system, and, and I think this philosophy, it, it shows up in, in when we talk about task management apps, something that you and I spent quite a bit of time talking about, or at least you trying to get me to try a new ones. Yeah. 
I, my task management system is, you know, a whiteboard, a calendar, and then 80% in my head, because in order for me to most effectively manage my tasks, I need to be able to, you know, sort of flex that muscle right. in my brain of, of being able to keep track of what I'm supposed to be working on. I don't know if that necessarily leads to peak productivity, but to me, the idea of outsourcing that sort of thing to an app would make me less productive. Yeah, I, I think that you're, uh, I think, and I, I have taught uh, the, the episode that you haven't heard, I literally just go through like why I think it's smart for someone to at least write down a daily task list every single day. And then, um, and then just, you know, if, by just the simple act of writing down, like, what are the five things you're going to do today? Mm -hmm. Write them out, try to prioritize them, put them in order. I think you do leverage your day a little better, but I think for someone like you, like I, whatever my brain is more ADD, you're like the opposite. Like mm -hmm. I think you're someone that could probably keep a task list in your head and kind of, and if there's a distraction or a phone call or an email, you will, you won't get pushed so far away from the thing you're supposed to do today. You'll kind of get yourself back on track. Right. They, uh, you know, that Jordan, I don't know if you've gone down the Jordan Peterson rabbit hole at all. He's no. sort of this conservative Canadian guy who's got the best selling book on the uh, New York times. And there's a, there's a, in psychology, they call it conscientiousness. Mm -hmm. They say that actually conservatives have higher levels of conscientiousness, meaning people that are naturally good at like follow through and drive, like they sort of don't question what they do, but you sort of just like a, it's a skill of like, if I start to do task A, I will finish it to the end. Mm -hmm. Um, people with ADD are classically great starters, bad, bad finishers. Right. Um, so they're the kind of people that it could be a great, you know, ADD person's really good at like having no fear about starting something because they often don't. Because if you don't have high conscientiousness, you don't even worry about how you're going to finish it. And then when it gets down to like, oh, we're now on, you know, year two of the LLC and tax paperwork and stuff like that. That's stuff like, you know, and, and for someone with ADD, that's really hard to do as well. Um, yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's, it's just, it's just interesting to see how different people's brains sort of, sort of lend themselves to different systems. And it, for me, um, when I, you know, applying this, like you said, to sort of starting and finishing something, I really like to be able to see the plan and whether I'm building that plan or borrowing that plan. Um, it's difficult for me to get excited about a project if it's just a beginning, you know, um, it's difficult for me to sort of get on board and say yes, which is something I'm trying to do more in my life, saying yes. If I don't... I'm trying to do the opposite. <laughs> I'm trying to say no to more stuff. Yeah, and, and that's probably a, a perfect way of describing the difference. But what do you mean by that? You mean like you feel like you... Well, this makes sense then because what I'm saying is for me, for someone like for like I get excited by this, like, oh my, like, you know, like on my task list often is like, oh, I want to start an app and I want to start this... I want to, I got to need, I need to start writing this book I want to work on. And, and like, literally I have like 10 different projects I want to start. Right. Um, I think because you probably can see full well that if I start this project, this is going to take up three hours per day. You actually, I think are probably better at saying like, be careful about what you start because it's a it's going to take a lot of time. Or, or that not even just the, a lot of time, but like, you know, what happens in a month when you finish it and now you have this app that you don't really want to spend the next year of your life building a company around and trying to market. And right. I don't really know anyone who's buying apps and blah, 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 blah. So like, right. so I think that, 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 that like a good idea is just like the very beginning for me. Like I need to see the whole good, I need to be able to uh, envision the entire good plan or at least the first like seven or eight steps of it that makes sense. But then you can get power, you can get, you know, sort of in the uh, move fast and break things, Facebook credo, which is sort of just like, just by starting and moving forward, you might, 
because there there is paralysis by analysis. That, yeah, oh, I agree. You know, I don't. I don't necessarily. I'm not. I'm not saying that this is a, a advice I would give on how to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> That's for right. sure. You know, I I think that um, there's a lot of projects that uh, that that I'd never not just never finished because I never started. Right. right. And, and, um, that being said, like, who knows for sure? Like, you know, maybe you could point to all the movies that I did complete and say, well, I was able to get those started, be- but, but maybe also it's because I've seen friends make movies and suddenly it becomes easier to see that whole plan. Like actually making an indie film for all its difficulty and for all its foolhardiness when it comes to financials is something that's kind of tried and true, right? We can look at the path of, you know, if you look at the path of Folk Hero and Funny Guy, we did the Kickstarter, which then held our feet to the fire to raise the money. And then once we had the money, we went and we shot the film. And then once the film was shot, we edited and got the music. And then we put it into film festivals. And then we got into a film festival. And then we found a distributor. And then we went to a lot of film festivals, had a lot of fun going to film festivals. And then the distributor put the film out. And so it's like a but that all of those things we knew would happen. The same amount of work we could have put into an app that could right. make money forever and ever and ever or the app or, could have made no money and made no, money. no one would have ever heard of it and we wouldn't be able to point to it with all this pride like we do when we right. point to folk here and funny well guy. it's an interesting i mean and also i think in our initial timeline it was something like we'll do this kickstarter in november we will shoot the movie in january we'll be at sundance the, <laughs> the following, following year yeah and the movie will be out the next summer yeah. and instead it was you know fox search i will buy it and <laughs> yeah. all of our investors will be rich i mean i think that was the that's the timeline that everyone starts out with so this will be a two-year this is a two-year window right like you know from initial kickstarter to the movies and theaters that's two years almost every filmmaker thinks that's going to happen and often it's I mean, we were probably in the middle of that spectrum and maybe even some would say once we had the of, money relatively accelerated from from making the film to festival premiere it was over a year until the film was officially released. And we, right. we went through a really long sales process, which was just kind of 2016. That's where in we a got nutshell, But we, 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 you know, we pretty much got I mean, you know, everyone wants to get into Sundance. And then after that, it's a little bit of a toss up between like Toronto, South by sure. Tribeca. Tribeca. Some movies, you know, we weren't really a, a can type of film. We weren't really like a foreign film festival kind of premiere because we're more of a comedy. But, um, but I mean, we got into one of our, you know, top, the top three festivals that we wanted to get into, which was great. Uh, but yeah, but after that, selling the film, it was surprisingly, it took for a long time. And it, it worked out well that we did hold out though, because we would have, if we had panicked and sold early, we would have lost a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or at least, um, our film would still be, uh, owned by a now defunct, Oh, that's true. It's uh, right. Five company. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Well, we were right. I mean, we, yeah, there was a, uh, I think it's, I think we could speak about it, but this company named Sisu wanted to buy our film for theoretically more money and, you know, upfront than what we eventually sold it for. But we would have, I, the, I mean, there's a good chance our movie would not be, you wouldn't be able to see it now. There's it a might. good chance we wouldn't have gotten all of that money too, because it probably would have been some sort of slower rollout of money. And we were the- suspicious of this, of this company's viability moving forward. It was basically ABC's version and of NBC's. Netflix. NBC. Yeah, that's right. NBC's version of Netflix. And then it folded about six months later. It did. Sorry. See, so, uh, sorry. That was me slurping the final remnants <laughs> of this lovely iced coffee you brought for me. Um, well, let's, let's deviate away from indie film. Let's talk about Tony Robbins. Cause I mean, the way that, so, this is interesting because as we're talking, it's refreshing my memory, but we started talking about Tony Robbins. We both kind of, we both were sort of geeking out on Tim Ferriss, which was sort of my gateway drug to rediscovering self-help in the like, you know, yeah. kind of more recently in the last five years. 
And he had Tony Robbins on. Yeah. That was and, the first time I had heard Tony Robbins speak, and I was extremely impressed by him. Yeah. And I, I to be honest, I had listened to his, I can't remember which series, but there was like a 12-part tape series mm-hmm. that I um, I think someone sent me like a Dropbox link to, and I just listened to the MP3s. So sorry, Tony Robbins. I owe you money for that um, at some point. But I, I, I thought the information, much like Landmark, for instance, I thought the information was great. I was highly suspicious of the motivations, mm-hmm. meaning... It seemed like he created himself a really great business model and that using self-help was a way to make more money for him. And I think the Tim Ferriss interview was the first bit of insight into who he really was as a person. Still a little suspicious. Um, and we could talk a little bit about business models for mm-hmm. the self-help industry because I think a lot of times really good information can be clouded by people's suspicions of, well, why do I have to spend $4,000 to do a four-day seminar or you know, with his book, you know, there's this, this is, organ- you know, there's this, uh, financial services company he keeps mentioning. Is that really the best company you would use? Is that what, really what you'd recommend people invest in? Or is that where he's making the money? And the book is sort of this loss leader. Um, but we started talking about Tony Robbins from that. And then when we were on the film festival circuit, what was, do you remember the name of the, the financial book that he wrote? Money. It's just called Money. Mm-hmm. Good title. It's not, it's not unleashing the inner financial wizard. In, There's certainly your heart. a long subtitle or two, but it's <laughs> unlocking your inner financial guru. Um, and then when we were on the festival circuit, his movie, um, it was, uh, John Berlinger, Joe, Joe Berlinger, Joe Berlinger. I have it written down here, right? But I said it wrong. He's <laughs> best known for the paradise lost HBO documentary series. He got those kids out of jail that were falsely accused and, uh, really really res- widely respected filmmaker. So everyone was like, well, this doesn't seem like a no- your normal puff piece. And I'm not your guru, which is the, I think it's called Tony Robbins. I'm not your guru, uh, was making its way through the film festival circuit, which was surprising. Cause you thought, thought really the movie about Tony Robbins is like sort of becoming a critically acclaimed indie film. And now it's on Netflix. You guys can watch it for free on Netflix or whatever the subscription monthly subscription is for there. Um, but I didn't see it on the film festival circuit, but you were like, this movie is, pretty shockingly good and and sort of took the information we learned from the, t- the Tim Ferriss interview with Tony Robbins. And it was like, this guy's actually kind of a legit, probably pretty good guy. Um, and certainly unde- undeniably from this um, documentary, there's people on the verge of suicide and it seems like he's talking them down from, you know, what could be like someone who's going to about to kill themselves. Within mm, the- yeah. And I mean, at least these people are, are saying that they're admitting in front of a, a, a not, we should probably explain what this, so this is, you did the four day program. This movie is about the six day program, correct? Yeah. So maybe we back up and talk about what Tony Robbins, the seminar you did was first. Sure. I, I can compare the two a little bit. Um, his, his, uh, the, the program I did is called Unleashing the Power Within or Unleash the Power Within. And it's his introductory seminar. It's a four day seminar. Um, I tried to, I tried to fact check these numbers. Um, but I couldn't find good numbers online. But as I remember it, there were between three and four thousand people in this seminar. It was in, in one room, in one giant, like, um, uh, you know, like, what are those called? Convention center room, right? It where, was, the where K- was this? This was in Dallas, the K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center, and right in, in the center of Dallas. Um, and I had, you know, I'd, I'd always been a little bit aware of Tony Robbins. I'd, I'd say that um, I, I don't think I'd ever really paid much attention until I heard that that interview on on Tim Ferriss and and found. Had you? I don't know if in Seattle, but in New Jersey, he was all over these. Like he'd be like, you know, after two in the morning, he had these really cheesy infomercials. Sure. Yeah, I, I 
wasn't paying attention. Mm. And I think I was aware of him because of that. But I, I certainly didn't think of him in, as anything other than some sort of infomercial charlatan or something. If I mean, you'd ask I, me. I think that's completely my my my, my, like, my initial impression was him is, oh, this is a guy who's pushing some sort of bullshit. But then, but then, you know, 800 number 20 years later, or however long, you know, he had was famous for advising Oprah and uh, Kobe Bryant. Yeah. And all these people that, that you were like, okay, well, he's obviously something respectable about this guy. So I think that I had, I had already gotten past like the, any initial skepticism that had been left over from his telemarketing or whatever days because of, which is pre-internet and how, if you had a, sure. a program you're going to sell, how else? I mean, it's a pretty, it makes sense why that would be the business model. Yeah. And also TV ads are super expensive. I do think his programs are a little bit overpriced, but if he's filling rooms with 4,000 people, then maybe he can set whatever price he wants. I do think it's like, I mean, how much is the four day program? Uh, I, so prices for it, I've seen quoted wildly different. I think the like sticker price on the program is something like 2,500 or $3,000. I remember I paid about $700 and that was, um, so if you hunt around a little bit or yes, I think that was about as low as it got. Um, and, um, I should back up a little bit and say that the, my doing this and, and really every, um, seminar type thing that I've done has all been because of, um, really, really close family friend, kind of a, um, my my big brother character in my life, a guy named Forrest Hamilton, who is um, a uh, motivational speaker, so to speak. I don't think he would say motivational. You know, one of those sort of characters. He's, yeah, I met Forrest. He's a really good guy. He, I mean, he's in the kind of he's in this world. He's though, in right? this world a little bit. Yeah, yeah. and he'd be um, interesting to talk to about some of this stuff. Yeah, too. I'm sure he'd love to do it. He um, he has worked really closely with this guy named Brian Tracy, who's another guy who's big big. You know, his face usually shows up near Tony Robbins and these kind of things oh, really? um, and a couple other um, people in, in this world. And and um, and Forrest uh, works in sales. So there's a lot of you know connections in this world with sales just because, you know, people who are good at sales tend to be good at these kind of things. And by one, well, it's also I mean, sales people tend to need a lot of like pump you. It, 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 you need a lot of pump you pump you up kind of right motivational exactly. stuff because it's sometimes it's like a lonely pursuit. Not so, to mention, um, you know, it's it's a good place place to way to find more clients too. Going to mm. a lot of seminars and and speaking at the seminars and then making connections that way. It's not that dissimilar from going to film festivals and meeting other filmmakers and sort of yeah. If if our you know direct um, professional world is the film festival indie film right. world, Forest Direct professional world is this Tony Robbins, Brian Tracy, whatever subject they're talking about world. So, um, so because of that, I had been exposed, uh, a fair few times to some of these seminars and, um, and what, and a few of which were considerably less, um, applicable to my own personal life than Tony Robbins. But which other ones have you done in the past? You know, I was trying to remember this guy's name, but it's his, his seminar is all about, um, running other seminars, you know, those sort of things. Well, that's, right? I, that's my joke about the self-help yeah. industry. No, is it's like absolutely 90% true. of it is, is there's a seminar about how to make more money. And they're all very in front of the it. advice like, is like, create a seminar about how to make more money. Exactly. And it's like, this seems like a, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, what do you call that? Something that goes on forever. It's self-fulfilling sort of, <laughs> I don't know. The, the, there is a lot of snake eating its tail. It, snake eating its tail is, is so, a good analogy. But, but it, it works. Um, and, uh, and, and honestly, but, the reason but that there's a tinge, it always feels a little like uh, it's everyone just taking everyone's money. And then at the end of the, at the end of this, there's really not like a viable business model here. I mean, how many, 
self-help seminars can one uh, country absorb? Well, that's absolutely true. But I don't think that, you know, you or I as being asked. As to, I say, as a podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. You, we're not being uh, asked to um to to really uh, look at these at these seminars and and say like is this worth the money? But but you know I'm not I'm not trying to pass judgment on this entire industry. There's obviously some issues with it. I always ended up going to these no, seminars. I, I actually come at it from a place of I used to be really suspicious of the whole industry, and I now kind of come at it a little bit more from I think there's a lot. Of, I, I think most of these seminars we did, you'd probably get return on investment. Certainly, if you work in sales, if you work in sales, <laughs> well, certainly you're getting clients at the meetings. No, but I mean, I think I'm, I'm, I'm. Well, it just depends. You have, you have, to, you have to go line by line. I'm like, I think someone like Ramit Sadi or Tony Robbins, or I think, I think like Tim Ferriss is probably the most ethical of all these people because he's so transparent about how he makes sure. money, and he doesn't seem like you know he's resisted the uh, the temptation to have his own line of vitamins and. No, yeah, and and doesn't I, have like a seminar. I tend to agree that that's true, and and I think that Tim Tony Robbins is is somewhere in the middle of that. And I've been to seminars with people that I think skew a little bit further away from that. But but for me, it was I, I just as a point of sort of leading up to Tony Robbins, um, it was a way for me to spend time with Forrest. And so for me and him to go to these, you know, for me to go to these things with him, um. It, I wasn't going necessarily as a as a target of the uh, the you know sales pitch of the right. seminar, and there was no way I was going to spend eighteen hundred dollars for the mastery course or whatever. Anyway, so so there is a, there is a it's a tiered thing. I mean, you basically are getting like this is like kind of like getting into Dodger Stadium with the cheap seats. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that if you want to pay more money, you're in the first ten rows, and you get one-on-one breakout session. Exactly. Exactly. And, and for me, it was always more about, you know, the, in the baseball analogy, I was more interested in going to hang out with my friends than I was to actually watch the game. Yeah. So, um, so, so Tony Robbins had actually stood apart for me as someone who I was really interested in the game. Um, I was interested in, in what he had to say. And I, um, was willing to pay the money to go to see him. And Forrest and I had talked for years about $700 for a four day seminar seems reasonable. Oh yeah. Very reasonable. And, and well worth it for this, but, but, um, because of Forrest's connection to the world, I think it's how I ended up only paying $700 and not because it was just, I waited until the end. I think it was maybe like sticker price was, you know, like I said, maybe like 2,500, but you could do it if you signed up early for 1700. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure you can find it pretty easily. Um, so, so in advance of, so Forrest had, and I had chatted about going to see Tony Robbins because he was at the top of that mountain of these guys. And I had always really been interested in doing it. And so he, um, he just and actually does Forrest go to these things to get kind of reconnected with some of the philosophies or is he going to it because it's just like in the way that maybe I would go to a Sundance film festival, even if I wasn't involved in anything that year, I might just go to like touch base with people I know and just catch up with people and see some films. I mean, is it, where does it fall on the spectrum for him? Do you think? I don't know how to answer that question for sure, but I would guess, um, that it's a lot about the philosophy and especially with someone as big as someone like Tony, like to go and hear him and, 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 you know, Forrest is certainly not going to be, um, you know, 
quote unquote endorsing a product that he doesn't believe in. Right. Um, but he's also, I think, you know, and, and this is an analogy, I'm not actually talking about products, but he is actually someone who's going to try a lot of those products. Right. And he's right. going to, to, to make sure he knows about all the different products that are out there. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, find the ones that, that work best for him and, and whatever. So, so he just actually called me up, um, kind of out of the blue and said, you know, you know, he's always talked about going to, see Tony Robbins. I'm going to this seminar in Dallas in uh, June. This was June of 2016. So um, it was just after Folk Hero had premiered at uh, Tribeca in, in April of 2016. And, um, and I said, okay, let's do it. And so I just bought a plane ticket with Miles, actually, and Forrest had an Airbnb. And I got on a plane. And the next week I was in Dallas going to see Tony Robbins. And so and how, did you have a good sense of where you're walking into or were you kind of a little so bit So I had surprised? watched the movie. Um, and so I'm not your guru. So you did the four day program and the I'm not your guru is, is the next level up. It's the six um, day program. Yeah, it's the um, it's what's it called? It's called uh, master mastering your own destiny or something. That's not what it's called. I can't remember either. They, they, but uh, I remember they said in the documentary it was about a four thousand dollar program. Um, yeah, and that one has about twelve hundred people. That's and it's twelve days. It's it's six days. Six days, and it's something like I mean, you're literally from like eight in the morning until eleven o'clock at night. You're in workshops. I mean, it's it's super intense, according to like the people I talked to in the the documentary. It's it's definitely more um, more intense than the uh, than the unleashing the power within, um, and it's there. There was a a bit of a sales pitch for which we'll talk about for the the this seminar too at the sort of the end of this the whole actually final how day. hard is the sales pitch it's i mean it works pretty well so i'd say is it but you know I, it, I was hard, it, it was harder than than i would have expected to be honest oh really yeah is it and do he they, doesn't do it someone else does it does landmark do the thing because like this is what i didn't like about landmark it was almost like well didn't you learn a lot today and you're like yeah and like so like, what are you afraid of like, there's a lot of that, like, kind of bullying you, like, kind of accusing you of being like, oh, so you're just stuck in your old ways. And then all of a sudden, I was like, and the minute, like, I'm like, you know, I literally, if I go to, like, Urban Outfitters, if someone tries to help me with a shirt, I basically am like, walk out of the store. Like, I hate being pressured, and I hate being... You would not like the pressure of this. Mm. And it wasn't done by Tony, which I think is the sort of... the escape. By design. Yeah. But, um, but I, I want to say that I don't... Um, I'm go I'm going to be able to share like everything that that I remember. I, I there's a lot I don't remember from the seminar two and a half, two and a half were, years ago. You think you were fully brainwashed? No, because <laughs> because uh I you know, I Well, it's also like it's like 18 hour days and just like intense. It's yeah, it was two and a half years ago. I rewatched the movie in anticipation of us talking about it. So I, that's fresh in my mind a lot a lot fresher than than the actual seminar was. Um but here here's what I remember most. So a few anecdotes from from the the unleash the power within seminar um it's extremely uh energetic so and you see this a little bit in the movie um but um there's he talks a lot about um changing your sort of station or whatever it is like um 
what, what what's what's he called? I, I had some notes I was going to bring. I forgot your emotional state. I yeah, it's like um, it's like you you need to do like a break with what the like state change that you were in, right? And so he gets you to like all the time. You're constantly like standing up and shouting and screaming and clapping, and he blasts music all the time. Not all the time, like going, but like in these state changes, right? So like so like you get up and you like and you know, high five five people near you, and you high five five right. people, and he's like, now uh, everyone stand on your chair. Everyone stands on. It's stuff like that. So that that's one of the and, and and I'm sure like you know us being cynical LA you know RD types right. You're like, huh. well, actually, but, but you kind of get into it right away. Or I mean, you're I, also with someone that's enthusiastic about it. I allowed myself to absolutely like dork out. Yeah, to take to take to go all the way with it. and and it, it'd be a complete waste of money if you didn't. Right. right. Like I was not going to it, criticize yeah. Tony Robbins. I was not, and and I. I have like my philosophy on this is like be as open minded as possible, and then sort of like what stays with you when you leave will be like what what was actually worthwhile. It, it would right? be completely pointless to like cross your arms and be like, I'm going to try to poke holes in this thing because there's a lot to be learned here. It's yeah. obviously a program that's working for people. Yeah, and I would say I'm skeptical, but not I wasn't cynical. Like yeah. I was skeptical. Like, uh, but but at the same time, I was like, let's you know, let me let me go with it and see see how it is. And it's fun. It's really fun to like stand up and scream and high five people right. and like run around and do wild stuff and and um and you know, the, I think the 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 thing I remember absolutely the most is the I think it was so Tony actually only does two of the four days. So that's that's one of the strange things about unleash the power within is it's actually is there a pretty big dip in like enthusiasm amongst the room yes and actually we skipped a day <laughs> that he wow, wasn't okay. there but, and that was you know to speak to um getting to spend time with forrest and and his right his daughters like my nieces and and um and so what we um but but the so the first day um the big um the big event is the you walk on coals right and so you, oh, yeah. you walk on walking on hot coals was like sort of tony robbins thing for all these years it's how he was known he had thousands and thousands and you know hundreds of thousands of and people. this is the stuff that makes me go like it's just you know it feels like all right this is starting to feel a little bullshit okay so you, this is this is like you're going through this whole thing and he makes and I, i'm playing more the role of the skeptic than i just for the sake of this conversation i'm not as skeptical but i, I this is when i would hear about this stuff 15 years ago well, for like, me, this sounds like a little weird yeah and you've heard like i guess like the the skeptic in me um is immediately you know assuaged by the fact that he's got tens of thousands of people doing this right and so so in the first the first day um you go through and you talk you know he does his thing for 12 hours however long it is and there's so a he's on stage He's on 12 stage. hours straight. They're not straight. There are a lot of breaks where you're supposed to be like writing stuff down and he'll leave stage. You actually see that in the movie a little bit. Like, I mean, you get the impression from the, the documentary that he is literally speaking for seven hours a probably day. Probably at least. Yeah. Which no. is insane. These are really long. I mean, days. you hear it. I mean, his, his voice sounds like it's pushing the limits of how much one can talk in the human lifespan or something. Yeah. And, and, um, so the pro the, the program that I did has a, has a whole lot less of what you see in the film, which is him standing, talking face to face with someone. Right. There's a lot less of that in this program. This, that there, this happens a little bit, but it's do, not. Do you think that there was any, uh, putting on a little bit of a better show for the documentary than maybe normal or no you... i think that just that's that particular program it was, the documentary from what i understood literally they just chose one weekend yeah 
and so that what was blew my mind was like wow i mean like so there's at least three stories in this thing that you feel like i can't believe that in a room full of a thousand people that there was like one woman was like basically in a brazilian sex cult mm -hmm. was raised in a brazilian sex cult and was like it said that she was on the verge of committing suicide and it seemed like like when I mean, you watch a documentary like it seems like tony robbins may have just saved this woman's life she literally like sold everything she had in brazil flew to america and like the only money she had left was to spend on this seminar and uh i mean to his credit i mean i think he pays for her to have you know professional counseling and yeah um and there's another guy that was like on the verge of suicide mm -hmm. um you know i mean these people i mean which is crazy because i i thought it was more not so much types like that and it, and, and i think a lot of these people were ex uh externally successful right meaning like i think they were people with decent jobs and stuff like that I'm, um i think that that program in particular is all about that um that 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 real like finding your um inner champion or something you know it's like it's it's all about so so unleash the power within is his broader right touching on a lot of different issues from all his different programs um, and then he has like a financial mastery program and he has these mastermind programs where it's all about building yourself into like, you know, the entrepreneur that you can be and ones that really focus on the financial thing, ones that focus on all these different. And I think the program that the film is made about is really about that facing down those right. personal demons. And Which that's makes why sense. you see so much a documentary. You don't want to watch someone talk about like, uh, how to like, you know. Increase profits by 20%. Right, right. So the, and, and, and the Unleash the Power Within is a little bit of all of those, right? And so there is a little bit of that, but, but, um, and especially in the so first day. So this is day, the, this is the intro course yeah. that obviously if you're, if what you really hit upon was financial stuff, then maybe there's a, there's a six And one day of the whole days is, is, com is devoted to the financial stuff, which is great. And I took a lot away from that. It's all about how you can become sort of the entrepreneur that you want to be. And he says whether that's, starting a business or it's just like, you know, being better at whatever it is that your chosen profession is. Um, but, but getting back to the, the, um, the Coles thing, because after the first yeah. sort of 10 hours or however long of talking about whatever, um, you know, he goes through all these things, he then starts talking about walking on Coles and he's, and, and it really becomes like the focal point of, the night and so you spend like two or three hours building up to it where he's it's all about facing your fears right this entire thing is an exercise about facing your fears and the idea is did you identify a fear i mean you don't have to talk it's about all it. about facing the fear of walking on coals the very literal fear <laughs> of walking on hot coals but you i mean are you that afraid of it if you know that everyone else has done it well that's exactly my point is that i was not even remotely afraid of it because right. I know that 10,000 people or 100,000 people already. have already done this. And so so it's like this two-hour-long buildup to doing something that I would have been fine to just walk out the door and do, which did feel a little overwrought. And also, I mean, the science behind it I've read a little bit is like that these coals ash over. And you're really stepping on the ash on top of the coals. So you, so, so there's. Now I sound like a real jerk. There's a technique to <laughs> it. Um, and, uh, he talks a lot about the technique of it. And you get out there and it's, it took, it took a long time, by the way, to get like file 3,000 people out to do this. 
Um, and Do you the, have to watch 5,000 people walk over coals? Well, it's this long waiting for people. You can't see it that well, but but you can sort of tell where they're going and you're sort of in the line and you're barefoot and like walking through this area. And you're hearing and, about like there's a, a few people must die, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, so so me walking out to these coals are like, you know, you have like there's like a, a little maybe like pool area with like towels in it where you get your feet wet and then you walk across the hole and they're like, he's like, whatever you do, don't stop because if you stop, then you're going to burn your feet and you walk across and you get to the other side and then you step right into another little cold bath area to cool it off. Right. And do your feet get a little burn? Well, that's the thing. Like I was like, whatever, everyone's doing this and no big deal. I burn the shit out of my feet. <laughs> like it actually burned me quite a bit. What is the, and, what is the legal paperwork look well, like for this thing? That's, and, and like the, the irony is that like we spend all this time building yourself up for something that you're that not afraid not of. afraid of and then i was like ow that actually hurt and it was like something i should have been afraid of and i probably shouldn't like you know like and it wasn't that bad like don't get me wrong I mean, like, how burned I, are we talking i mean you i could feel did you have blisters no i could feel it the rest of the night um and by the next day i i don't think i could really feel it so it it, it wasn't like it wasn't bad but it's also not like it's nothing and there were and there was actually a kind of a i, I think there that, was some person that got kind of injured at one well, of these actually things at, i think everyone always there's always like there, when we got to the other side there were like at least 30 people all laying, laying around putting like salve on their feet but um but in the the newspaper the next day like I guess like a dozen people had gone to the ER or something and, and he addressed it. Um, and he kind of was like, you know, talking a little bit of shit about it saying like, Oh yeah, well these people did it wrong or something. It's like very like, like you wouldn't be the, like, you know, he has this very, you, you, you can see yeah. him in the video. He has this very dismissive tone to things that like, and, and he treats it in a very like upfront way where he's like, well, like, you know, are you a pussy? Like sort of like that kind of thing. Like he has well, this very style, macho style. Cause his books are uh, much more, uh, I would say the tone is very universal. Yeah. I mean, there's no swearing. Right. In the, in the documentary, it sounds like every other word is an F bomb. Yeah. A- and he's really c- almost unpleasantly confrontational at yes. times. Like there's a woman that's, um, on the verge of suicide. This woman that was in a, s- a sex cult, I believe. And, and I, he was pretty much like, well, what are you gonna do? Like, then just, uh, you're not gonna kill yourself. I mean, but, but here's the thing. I think the guy, I mean, it's like sort of like, um, there's a book that's going around right now. I think it's called Anti-Fragile or mm-hmm. no, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind and how this generation of, right. of below us is sort of like been overly protected from everything, you know, this sort of safety culture. And, and I think someone like Tony Robbins, and I want to talk a little bit about Trump because I think the gift that Trump has, I think is the gift that, uh, Tony Robbins has, which is sort of this, uh, almost savant like EQ, uh, emotional intelligence. Right. Um, they understand like exactly how to push. But I think like Donald Trump is somewhat of the evil version of this, uh, the manipulative version of this. And I think Tony Robbins is the, I think, altruistic version of this. Sure. But I was really surprised by how confrontational he was. Yes. He really, you know, he calls people pussies or he, he, he yeah, you know, no, he, and he, he, he gets right into the, you know, what are you're not having, what are you not going to have sex with your wife? Or there was this one thing that me and my girlfriend were watching it and I was listening and he's like, he, he was like, the analogy was like, now you're, he's like, now, now here come a bunch of lambs and now you need yeah. to be a tiger and slaughter them, right. slaughter those lambs. I was like, this is like, uh, no, he, and, and actually I think intense. one of his, one of his most, um, well, well, I guess what we're getting we're at talking, I'm trying to find the audio books that I listened to of his, cause I can't find the actual ones. Cause it was like a 12 step course or something is like it that. Power. There was, I think he has a, a, a famous one or something like that. Well, so, so the getting at the, the, um, 
you know, that sort of macho thing. He has a very effective technique where he does that, where he, he get, uses these sort of, uh, taboos and, um, and, and it feels very unapologetic, which does have a very Trumpian feel to it, right? There's this whole, right. this whole like, you know, anti-politically correctness, which he actually, I don't know if you read about this, but he did get in trouble for some Me Too comments that he made and then gave a really, really... Because um, well, what was his thing? It was sort of like, I, I, there's a big part of the self-help community that's all about take responsibility for anything that's happened to you. Right. So... You know, the the most extreme example here, I'm not endorsing this, just be careful. Uh, but like you would say to a rape victim, get over it, you know. Don't let it define there's your There's not a lot of power in being a victim. Right. And at some point you just need to be like, it happened to me, I can move on. Now that's easy to say, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist. But that, I think he was saying something along those lines of, and, and he's not wrong, right? Like if you, if you, if you, if your whole life is about how I was a victim of sexual assault at one point. I mean, you're, it's just not going to be effective for your life moving forward. Well, his, his I mean, that's what he would say, or that's what the argument he's making is. You know, his views on gender and gender identity, I think, are less politically correct than what is the center right now. Right. I think that um, because of that, you know, and, and because of his outspokenness, he um, he has, you know, the, the tendency like I, I can see why he would get in trouble and and in anticipation of us talking about this i went and tried to do a little bit of research as to what he actually said and we have a, a <laughs> my dog is freaking out here so i think it's okay he's uh sawyer's very concerned with gender politics <laughs> he's feeling triggered um and uh and, and it was interesting you know people can go and read the comments and make their own decisions for themselves i don't think we need to spend too much time talking about it but i do think it was interesting that he um when when you Google, you know, Tony Robbins, Me Too, most of the uh, or, or at least the, the top articles tend to say something along the lines of read Tony Robbins, Me Too apology and see why he has done it better than everyone else. Like like it's like Tony Robbins. Well, he's, an, he's, he's the most emotionally emotional, intelligent emotional person. intelligence you're talking about. Yeah. And, it's and like, that what, means three that... things you three things you can learn from Tony Robbins, Me Too apology. Well, because we're living in a time where I mean being on a podcast you're you're we're all terrified i i've heard kind of you know there's this big free speech movement coming from the intellectual dark web which is guys like sam harris and eric weinstein and jordan peterson and it's been misidentified as a conservative movement it's really more of a centrist movement but um and there are conservatives within it and there's liberals within it but uh the free speech seems to be the big talking point on the right right now because because there's such a fear that if you say there's no um, goodwill bestowed to anyone, right? Everyone's just looking for that gotcha moment. Like uh, Aunt, uh, Scaramucci, what was his first name? Uh, Anthony Scaramucci? Mm-hmm. So Anthony Scaramucci was on Bill Maher this weekend mm-hmm. and he was on MSNBC. And I, I was interested, I, I actually find him to be really interesting. Um, I, no one is more concerned about the Trump administration than me. So like, I'm not a fan, but he's trying to explain to MSNBC and to Bill Maher why the Trump, tactics are working and how like why that his big thing is like he's like when when the when the press freaks out about trump's lies they're losing ground i get the impression that scaramucci wants trump to be unseated i mean because and and no one's able to even listen to his advice they're like why are you apologizing for trump he's like and he's clearly not apologizing for him he's just saying here's why his his continuous lie trump is about emotional uh information right and the press is still treating it like it's real information or it's real political policy. Mm-hmm. Trump knows that if he 
completely bullshits. If he says he's making a 10% tax cut next week, which Congress isn't even in session, uh, part of the appeal to Trump, the Trump base is that it's, it's, it's almost like trolling the press. And then the press freaks out or the, you know, the whole caravan thing. This caravan's a thousand miles away. They can't, they won't be here for like another year. But Trump has managed to get the entire press freaking out and twisting, you know, you know, everyone's getting twisted, bent out of shape about it. But it's like, it's like, we all know that Trump makes up a lie. The press then spends three days on it. And in the meantime, he's managed to, you know, completely sidetrack everyone off of the, um, the Khashoggi murders, you know, which he's in a really bad position on. So, um, would I see a similarity between Tony Robbins and Trump is that they both are emotional communicators and that Trump, Trump's probably gift, you know, uh, in the, uh, in the, there's a, there's a Ted talk by, uh, uh, Tony Robbins and Al Gore is in the front row. Have you seen this? No. So he's like, so whether it's, uh, you know, it's like whatever your excuses in your life, right? I didn't have the right manager. And he's like, people are sort of shouting out, like, what are the excuses? And so he's like, so like, <laughs> hanging chads. Yeah. And so he, <laughs> and so people go like, like people are like, I didn't have the right manager. Yeah, exactly. I didn't have the right manager or my boss is a jerk. Okay. And then like, literally like people are shouting out or he's like, and Al Gore goes out, didn't have the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> and then you see in this this TED talk, Al Al Gore is in the front row, and literally Tony Robbins starts going like, "Al, you know that like you didn't communicate with enough emotion, and that people want to vote for you." But and Al Gore, if there was ever an, a, the exact opposite candidate to Donald Trump, it was Al Gore, hyper qualified, super cerebral, um, probably the right centrist kind of politician, you know, that appeals to eighty percent of the of America, and then. And then you have, you know, the completely, the complete opposite is, is Donald Trump, who is all emotion. Uh, I think he didn't ever think he'd win. So he was able to kind of play with house money and just try out a bunch of different tactics and just, you know, blatant lying, deliberately provoking people on Twitter and in the press. And, you know, he recently called, um, Stormy Daniels horse face. I mean, it's just things that we can never imagine from a politician, but to a, to a, he criticized a, the Dodgers bullpen decisions during the game last night. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine? Any, and, and I mean, maybe this is like two thirds of our problem is us saying, can you imagine a president doing this? And it's all about precedent, not president. And, right. and, and this like, you know, the outrage over precedent is, um, is all about, you know, and, and that's what, you know, if you turn on MSNBC, which I do a lot, I watch a lot of MSNBC and, and, you know, it, it, a lot of it is about, can you believe the precedent here? But, but maybe what you're getting at is this idea that, um, we need to stop worrying so much about precedent and worry less about an- the analytical side of things and think more about the emotion. That's interesting. Well, I mean, or the, the candidate that's going to beat Trump. And I mean, Hillary's problem is the same thing. Hillary is very similar to Al Gore. She's sort of, She's done the best job of of creating a facsimile of a of a charismatic person, but it's fall, falls hugely short. But you're also describing Barack Obama. I mean, you're talking no, about but Barack Obama is comp- super charismatic. But okay, charisma, yes, but 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 the analytical element, right? Like this did not that did not that was the side of him that did not resonate with a lot of Americans. Right, right. It, it was too polished. Right. You know, uh, and I think like Bill Clinton had a charisma and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and Trump shared sort of this sort of like a guy you want to hang out and have a beer with. Uh, you know, I think for George W. Bush, all the verbal gaps were more of a, a feature, not a bug for him. Because it was like, oh, this is a guy that talks like I do. That was Kevin Brennan's messing up a line or two at karaoke. 
Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> to, to pretend that you don't know the song as well. I mean, By the way, I, I do want to take one slight issue with your discussion. Well, with, you are a karaoke with, with Kevin. Yeah. expert and, as well. And, and an entire entire subgenre of karaoke that you guys didn't even touch on is hip hop. There's there was not a mention of rap at we all. We are in discussion. both rock centric. Yeah. Uh well, yeah, cuz you uh, I only I really only do rap. You've yeah. done Eminem. I I do a lot of rap uh, mostly um not not completely but oftentimes to the paler <laughs> end of the uh of Who, the, what the are your tone. top 3 uh karaoke's in the rap world? Um I would say uh Okay, well, you know, snapshot. It's hard to know. Like, do you mean historical or right now? If we went to karaoke, what would be the three songs I put in if right I, now? If I was like blow everyone away right now with your best karaoke, what would it be? My probably my my best and over the years the piece that has been the thing that I like would you know put my hat on would be <laughs> uh, Eminem, um, uh, Real Slim Shady. The real some shit. Yeah. Very difficult. Because it's, it's super, I mean, it's, it's, uh, words per minute is off the charts. Yeah. And, um, and, and I can, I would never advise anyone getting, that's just getting into karaoke to, to, I think rap is an entire genre that's very difficult. Unless you are just a, a super aficionado fan. I've tried a few rap songs in the day. I sound like the whitest dude ever right now. But like, because you think I, I think I know a song kind of well, but it's so different when it's coming. It takes at you. a lot of practice. There's yeah. a very definitely a practice element, and I think that I started doing real Slim Shady when I was living in Japan, going to karaoke with Japanese friends that would just like freak out about it because they they had never heard anyone like speak English that fast. You were like Elvis to them, and um, and then when I got to L.A. and you know tapped into the importance of karaoke in the film industry um <laughs> that was something that, that it I is could shocking pull out every karaoke is currency and I was, I was at the podcast convention it yeah. was like karaoke was the thing everyone did every night and like to be good at karaoke was sort of like if you were not good at karaoke it was a little bit of a disadvantage to like enjoying yourself and 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 real slim shady in particular is a piece that uh i would not recommend doing if you're too drunk to drive <laughs> you know so there's certain talk yeah back to that you can issue. get that song can get ahead of you real quick real quick and um and so so I, if you want a little bit easier gateway drug into the hip-hop world you can do like some snoop dog tends to be pretty easy gin and juice is a little too slow but mm-hmm. uh but you know doing uh dre and um Forgot about Dre is a good uh, mm-hmm. next level between um, between Snoop and and uh, and Eminem, um, and then and then I really like doing Beastie Boys because there's there's a there's a throwback element to it too that everyone. What's your go to Beastie? Paul Revere. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But you can. It, unfortunately, there's not a lot of Beastie Boys at karaoke in general. Yeah. Why is that? I've noticed that. I don't. I think that it's just sort of an underappreciated corner of the karaoke hip hop world. Um, <laughs> But we've, we've we've veered far from far field <laughs> from walking on from walking on coals <laughs> and Trumpisms. Uh, uh, yeah, so so a little bit just away from that aside. But but well, yeah, and, and, and again, the Trump thing. I'm not you know I'm I'm really you know I I worked in political consulting. Frank Lunch was my was the guy I studied under in college, and when I was in D.C. and um, I took a semester there in a summer and learned a lot, but. The what became per, and I you know and I worked in advertising for a long time, but I think one thing I've always and I've done stand up. So my unique insight is that I've always thought politics is about emotion and not about right. I mean, at least to win. But I mean, isn't it just makes like it? 
as storytellers, which I hate that, that expression that people always use, but um, if you can't communicate your product, that's why the iPhone is better than Google, partially because I, Apple just did such an amazing job of marketing their products for so many years. They have such a head, you know, it, the product I've is not, been, I've never been affected by that. Issue, you've never been affected by that, but <laughs> there's a belief that the iPhone is so much better than the other phones. And it's, it's a marketing, it's a storytelling. It's right. this, 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 the, uh, the, the legend of Steve Jobs. And I think to ignore when I, I get so frustrated with my friends on the left who, you know, who are like, it shouldn't matter. Policy should matter. And I was like, well, you can, you could say that, but that would be like running a company and saying, it shouldn't matter how I market. And if you don't mark, if you, if you can market with emotion, which is what Trump is doing so well, and which I, which I think Hillary lacked, right? Hillary's website was all about, you know, 15 page, you know, if you wanted to read a hundred pages of her 10 policies, it was there on the website, but that's not what, the, that's not going to get you elected. And in fact, you know, being able to boil down your, your core issues or your the way you're going to make the country better. Um, and our best politicians have always done it. JFK and Teddy Roosevelt and, um, FDR. I mean, if you can't speak with emotion and clarity, um, then you're going to lose uh, or right. you're not going to capture the imagination of the American people. So that's just, I, I think Tony Robbins has that. He's someone that could clearly become president if he wanted to be. And, and I think that, that he does come from, um, a place, uh, of, you know, there, he is helping people and there's a little bit of a, um, I'm sure you help as many people as he's helped and he hears how much he's helped people over and over again. And people who are going to a Tony Robbins seminar are more likely to be the kind of people who are going to be susceptible to that kind of help. And so I do think it probably builds into like, like who knows, like in the dead of night, what Tony Robbins like actually feels like in his heart about the amount of money he's made from the people that he's made it from, you know, like, and, and what that really like means from, um, you, you know, cause he's clearly made a lot of money. I mean, he could, he, I mean, one could argue that he could, I'm sure that they would argue that by charging what they do, they expand the program to more people than they could if they cut the prices. Right. Or, but I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, wouldn't, if this program was such creating such great will, why not make it free? I don't know the, I mean, I'm sure that's not realistic either. You know, I had the same argument about the Harvard endowment. Why not make Harvard for, why you have, you have a, a, an endowment that would make it that you could uh, from the interest alone, make school free for everyone. What is, why does Harvard need to have a $300 billion endowment? And why are they trying to make it a $900 billion endowment? Um, that's and, what and why, why does he need to push his like, you know, bigger programs so much, right? Why does that, why, why does he have to do the thing where he's like, it's $10,000 if you want to go to all six of my programs, but if you get in line and pay, do it right now in the next 90 seconds, you can do it for $7,500. They use that kind of time. They scarcity. use that kind of stuff all the time. And that's, that's like a completely manufactured economic thing, right? Like, like it's not like they're getting $10,000 of value for only $7,500. You paid the, you just fell for the sales trick is what you did, right? Like, like but, the, but the, if the I price believe... on the website says this, which I'm telling you right now. And suddenly it's in your head that that's where the value is. The reference price is that much higher. And, and if the program, I mean, I, this is my problem with landmark. And I think, I think it's a legacy of a different era. I think of an era where you were spending, he probably was spending a small fortune on, on infomercials on television, which is the only way to reach a mass audience at the time. And then you have to charge a lot for these programs. And I think nowadays, if you were to restructure the whole thing from a Facebook, Instagram, laser targeting, you know, kind of world, I would think you could reduce the price of these, these programs a lot. Now, uh, I'm sure I would get 
crucified. You know, I'm sure if I were to speak to someone from Tony Robbins' organization, that would be, uh, I would, I would hear. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of logic to why you charge a lot, and then there's probably programs and philanthropic, you know, philanthropic stuff that they do around the world. Um, but I, I, I'm and always when you talk about pure value. The value is probably like you know there is probably something where it's like if you are willing to spend. I mean, he is a billionaire. Yeah, if you're willing to spend you know twenty five hundred dollars on this program, you're going to get more out of it than if you only spend two hundred and fifty. Like I spent. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not like yeah. That's like my. It's like that's like a, a trainer I had once was like the reason I'm two hundred dollars a session is because you'll you because you, 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 you'll value it more. I was yeah. like you don't. I'll, trust me, I'll value it plenty. You can charge me forty dollars. I'll be, I'll be fine. But, but I, I mean, there's a, there's an economic principle that you and I have discussed in the past, which is like, you know, this, this in a nutshell, like if you give away a PDF on your website, then no one's going to download it. But if you charge ninety nine cents for that PDF, right, then like that's going to be seen as really valuable information. And or if you charge a hundred dollars for it, right. Well, I, but you can say a hundred and then like have a slash through the hundred and have it for ninety nine cents. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is all capitalism stuff, I, but it is, I mean, I think it's uh, by nature, right? And we're we're coming at this from a point of view that we're, we're both kind of artists. We're both not as financially motivated, maybe to a fault, as we should be. So Tony Robbins on the, is someone on the other end of the spectrum. I also think he grew up way poorer than I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I grew up, you know, upper middle class. I, I think you grew up kind of more middle class. Or, yep. Yeah. Um, and so like, I never, you know, I had a, my grandmother paid for college, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 um, so maybe growing up with enough, mm-hmm. you know, I never felt like my parents were never stressed out for money. Um, I, it didn't awaken the sort of financial desperation in me that some of the most wealthy people in the world came from incredibly like impoverished situations. I know that Tony Robbins home life sounds like his dad left home mm-hmm. after someone brought over some Thanksgiving food because mm-hmm. he, and then his father was so upset with himself that people had to give them handouts that he left the family. And he, I mean, it sounds like he came from a pretty tough upbringing. Right. Um, and, I, and again, like, I mean, you know, the whole point of this podcast is like, I, I just want to probe and prod these things. And then I'd, I'd be happy to talk to someone from like the Tony Robbins organization and, and, and hear their side of the story too. I'm not trying to, I mean, I, Ultimately, I think if someone's interested in doing the Tony Robbins four day program, they should do it. Cause I think Absolutely. you got something I, out of it. I would say so. And, and, and I, like I was saying at the very beginning of this conversation, there is, um, you know, going in with, uh, skepticism, but without cynicism will lead to you getting a lot out of it. And if nothing else. And so, and, and so I was trying to, to look, I went back and looked at the notes that I made and, and trying to see if there was anything that I actually took away. Uh, from the seminar that has influenced me in a big way that I maybe didn't realize. Um, and, and I wouldn't say that there was a lot of like business mastery or, or personal things that, that have had really long echoes like in my said, life. I like just, like, the fact that you just said business mastery. Well, exactly. <laughs> or, or anything that, um, but the thing that actually I think was my biggest takeaway, strangely enough, was, um, a large portion of the final day, which is not Tony, it's the other guy. Um, is spent talking about health and diet. And there is this thing about like, if you can try this diet, which is like a mostly vegan diet, I think it wasn't fully vegan diet and exercise regimen and all these different things, no alcohol, these things, just try it for two weeks. He's like, he always says this thing. It's like, you can do anything for two weeks, right? Two weeks is actually kind of a long time. Um, (laughs) He's like, can you, can you do this for, you know, try it. And I, and I felt motivated enough coming out of that to, try that. And because of that, um, I, I feel like I have a, a better, a more thought. I think that started this process of me experimenting a lot more with diet. It's something we didn't talk about at all. Maybe we'll talk about this in another episode. Cause I know we've been 
getting to the the boundaries of what any podcast listener is going to want to download. <laughs> I think we lost them at the rap, the, the Slim Shady rap. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but, you know, that I think for me was probably the biggest uh, takeaway that still has echoes in. And I, and I dabbled. Mean, so for you, because that was the thing about listening to the tapes. Mm-hmm. I think I listened to, and it wasn't tapes, it was MP3 files, mm-hmm. but it was like literally 12 MP3s each. And at some point I got a little skeptical because it was like, now diet. Now finance. Right. Now it was like now relationships. And I will say that every chapter I thought was well, was good. And the information was, was, and I, when I was listening to these tapes, I was, at, I was 39 and I was depressed as all hell. I was about to turn 40. And I remember thinking, I, I don't know what it was. I like, I woke up the day after New Year's with a, like, the, this is the, you know, the year that I was 39 years old. I woke up the day after New Year's very depressed, probably hungover. And I remember just that, like that morning I went out and bought like three self-help books and I downloaded I, I remember asking my buddy about the, the Tony Robbins tapes. He sent them to me and I went like on a three month, like I listened to every self-help book and every, and, but his book, I thought it was good. I mean, I remember he, he does this thing when he wakes up in the morning where he like breathes. And he's like, <sighs> yeah, yeah. He does that in the movie too. And he does jumps in his ice bath and jumps in an ice bath. And I, I do the cold shower thing because yeah. of Tony, Rob, the Tony Robbins book. I don't have an ice bath. Um, but yeah, he has like a, in the documentary, it's a, he has like this like weird, like two, tiny pool thing, three by three, yeah. pl- uh, Plunge pool. Plunge pool. And apparently it's like just below, b- above freezing temperature. Yeah, it was actually, he said it was only 57. I thought that was a little bit warmer than I expected. It's enough to give you hypothermia. Well, <laughs> um, yeah. And so for me, that takeaway of, of trying the vegan diet, which was something I ended up. So I, that's is his official, because he, he almost died of mercury. Tony Robbins almost died of mercury poisoning. Yeah, he talks about that a lot in the seminar. Um, no, his, I, I think he is. fish, right? Yeah, he's. Um, I can't remember what his exact diet was, but this, I think this diet was less about doing exactly his diet and more about like being more aware of what you're putting in your body. And, um, and so, uh, I said, do you think you're, you're eating less meat and more plant based foods now? I, I definitely did directly after the seminar. I went fully vegan for a few months and then sort of on and off for a number of months after that. Um, and, uh, generally speaking, I eat, yeah, we lot. went to, we spent a lot of time at film festival together with you being vegan. Yeah. And <laughs> that was and right, I, right in the middle of this. Time. There was a, there was a lot of us wandering cities like Wichita, Kansas, looking for a vegan restaurant. And I was like, <laughs> you know, you know, you would never be the front about it too. You'd always be like, there's this really great place 19 blocks from here we could walk to <laughs> called Falafel House. <laughs> and we get there and it was some crappy, you know. In, in LA, you can be vegan very easily. In Wichita, Kansas, uh, let's, interestingly let's enough, I, I guess my point was that um, if you if if you never know what you're going to find if you go into this seminar and or some some of these seminars with an open mind and um, and if nothing else, you can learn a lot about just the techniques of very successful or or tory speaker sort of the like all of these like you know techniques techniques that he uses are very interesting and and it's fun so i would recommend he does a lot of uh what i call pre-agreement which is like he's like now you all want to be more successful right say yeah and i was like well you're not asking me a question you're basically just telling me to agree with you but i mean i definitely think there's a lot to learn i mean i actually generally think that uh yeah on the plus side i think tony robbins is legit i don't think he's a scam artist uh, I think he has an incredible sense, a way of connecting with people. I think that having read his, I'll have to, I'll have to find out, I'll put it in the show notes, but I'll find out what was the, I remember being like a 14 to 15 hour audiobook, mm-hmm. 
And um, I remember it really helped me with a lot of things. It helped me write relationships. I mean, so there was really good information all there. I'm also someone that can tolerate a high degree of cheesiness, which if you get, if you're going down the Tony Robbins path, it's going to be cheesy. It's going to be like high octane. It's, uh, it's, you know, if you're, if you're a cynical indie filmmaker, I'm sure a lot of people didn't even listen to this podcast. It was talk, you know, we're talking about Tony Robbins, right? So there's that. Um, so I think the information is good. And I think the downside is it just seems like the stuff is always very extremely expensive. I was just going through his website right now and his 12 part, still selling a 12 part CD series for $150. You know, why can't that be, you know, can that be 30 bucks? Or could, should that be an audible? You know, I don't know, but, um, it's not my business, not my company. And yeah. So you'd say do it. I'd say do it. Absolutely. Go, go for it. Give it a try. Um, I would, if you can, and if you, and you should probe, probe around to see if you can find like the $700 brochure. Yeah. Give them a call. Tell them that you're going to do it, but you only have this much. And if they say no, then don't do it. You know, like, like there's no, you got nothing to lose with giving that a try. Um, I would not sign up for the like, you know, all nine part $15,000 one before you do the first one for a few hundred dollars or whatever, you know, go and, and if it changes your life, so you could, if it. you're getting caught up in the frenzy of this four day program, throw a credit card down and be on the hook for $15,000 of programming. I, I can't quote that exact number, but I think the full meal deal thing was definitely thousands of dollars. Yeah. What, what was the best? I mean, so when you're giving one of these pitches, like if you do the next 90 seconds, what was the biggest discount that you can remember? Was it like, this is $15,000 with the classes, but if you do it right now, it's $3,000. It was probably not quite that extreme. It was probably more like, this is $15,000. And if you do it right now, it's $7,500. i am pretty sure. Like, I believe almost, and I think we all now realize like those like limited time offers are always of, available again, if you call back. And yeah. And one of them scarcity. like involves like a trip to Fiji. So that's going to be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, trip to Fiji, why not? He owns an island. All right. Well, I think that's, uh, we're at the 90 minute mark here. Um, we'll have to do another one. We'll, we'll, we'll have you come back on when we talk about, we'll talk about intermittent fasting and diet at some point. Yeah. I'd love to, love to chat about that. And, and I've experimented with a lot of these. Um, I think actually it was the four hour body that was my entree to Tim Ferriss. So I can, I can talk about all these different things. And I I actually tried that diet and and was gaining weight. That's why I switched to intermittent fasting. Well, I have nothing good. I have nothing good to say about Bulletproof. That was the least. Oh, really? Which is pretty close to keto. Keto is so. tough because it, it, you have to eat so much high high fat. Yeah. And I'm just not convinced that like a diet of nothing but red meat and high fat. And I, I don't know. I've, I've lost some weight on it. But more, I think what's helped me more was by restricting restricted eating windows. Yeah. So, well, well, also, you just have like a sheen of butter everywhere in your kitchen. <laughs> There's like I everything's love, a little buttery. I love butter. <laughs> butter. I, I am. I do butter in the coffee every morning. So. Um, all right, Rylan, it's been good having you on. Um, thanks, Jeff. Thanks a lot, bro. Hey, guys, if you're liking the podcast and want to help us out, just a quick reminder to go to iTunes, leave us a review, leave a comment, suggest some new people we should have on the show, topics you want us to discuss. And you can also do the same on Twitter. You can hit me up at at Jeff Grace. And otherwise, I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.